Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. According to information obtained through an Access to Information Act request, in 2016, senior management at IRCC approved over $10 million over three years to build and deploy predicative analytics models across several lines of business. The goal would be to triage applications, conduct network analysis to link fraudsters to clients, and process low-risk applications. In June 2016, predicative models were used to perform a risk triage of the entire Inside Canada spousal sponsorship inventory. Among the finalized applications, those identified as low-risk had a refusal rate of 4.7%, while those identified as high-risk had a refusal rate of 24.6%. Since March 2018, a predicative model sorts China visa applications into tiers. The lowest risk are automatically approved, medium and high risk are sent to human officers for review. Several visa offices now use a software called Chinook, and also known as Pariah depending on the visa office, to bulk process applications and generate refusal reasons. In the final report of the IRCC Anti-Racism Employee Focus Group that was released in October 2021, some IRCC employees said, quote, that increased automation of processing will embed racially discriminatory practices in a way that will be harder to see over time, end quote. So if you haven't guessed, this episode we are going to be talking about artificial intelligence and how it is being used in the Canadian immigration law context. Deanna and I are joined by Mario Bellissimo, the founder of Bellissimo Law Group PC. Mario is the past chair of the Canadian Bar Association 
National Immigration Law Section, and he serves as an appointed member of several committees, including the Federal Court Rules Committee, uh, committees at the Immigration Refugee Board, IRCC, the Department of Justice, and Employment and Social Development Canada. He regularly speaks before Parliament on Canadian immigration matters. Mario, Diana, and I discuss how artificial intelligence is increasingly being used to triage and decide visa applications, how procedural fairness will need to be reimagined to deal with a possible AI triaging system, as well as deference in the administrative law context. And what that means is, to just briefly review, federal court judges often give deference to visa officers. Should they give the same deferences to AI as it increasingly processes applications? We discuss possible problems with the use of artificial intelligence in the immigration law context, as well as some hypotheticals where in the future, um, uh, artificial intelligence website bots may serve as authorized representatives before IRCC, and also how in the future it is possible that when someone submits a visa application, not only will IRCC and visa officers be able to access everything that the person has posted on social media, but possibly even what their representative has posted on social media, and how the immigration process will increasingly be driven by possible AI decision makers that are automatically connected and linked to the internet. It's a very, it was a very, very interesting episode, and as a practitioner who has increasingly been retained by people to challenge refusals that were clearly generated to some extent by AI or an automated refusal generator. Very interesting. Uh, Mario can be reached at info, I-N-F-O, at bellissimolawgroup.com, B-E-L-L-I-S-S-I-M-O-L-A-W-G-R-O-U-P.com. I can be reached at stephen.murins at larley.com. You can learn the spelling of my name in the podcast title. And Deanna can be reached at D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A. And I guess I'll give my email. It's S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, the audience has picked up quite a bit recently. Um, and if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. <laughs> So if you've seen my latest blog, Two of the Most Dangerous Immigration Questions, um, in reference to both temporary applications and permanent residency applications, you know, the standard question, have you ever been refused or in any other territory or country? Um, and then when you move to the permanent resident version, it doesn't even use the word permit, it uses visa. Yeah. So I took those two questions and unbundled them. And those two questions, if you actually ask things individually, end up being 12 questions. So they're asking people pretty much 10 to 12 things in one question. And then when you go to court, it's automatic that the question is clear. And they use that to ground the five-year inadmissibility and misrep finding. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, to me, 
it's just amazing. It's, as I said in my blog, it's like a gotcha exercise. Are we really trying to elicit information um, or are we not? And with these sophisticated systems we have in place now, which is part of what we're discussing today, they have this information. Yeah. So exactly what are we doing, especially when yeah. it rela relates to U.S. refusals? What are we trying to accomplish? Is this an inventory management tool? Um, Deanna, you and I were heavily involved with the CBA. Remember when we were pushing for the two-year bar that there be stages of misrep finding penalties, two, five, 10, whatever, rejected. So everybody's a five-year ban now and the consequence to applying. So I just, I, it's disappointing the way some of these um, inadmissibility provisions are playing out. Um, and, and again, I question what is at the root cause What's the animus for these, for these questions and for these findings? Um, if you see most of the uh, refusals now, let's say out of China, I think 71% are misrep findings. So yeah. to me, um, and I think that was actually in your blog, Stephen, your latest blog um, that you sent around the latest refusal rates or admissibility findings, I think it was 71% if I'm recalling it accurately. So that's a lot of people. And we're talking to, we've been talking a lot to uh, Sharma also about what's happening in India in terms of, um, you know, what's happening with misrep allegations being um, thrown at people where it's not just a genuineness assessment where you find a relationship to be non-genuine, well, then they also throw at them a misrep allegation or when you're going at a port of entry and rather than just saying, well, we find that you're not eligible for this, we'll also throw in a misrep allegation because you shouldn't be making this sort of an application at the port of entry, something like that, where the misrep allegation has become, you know, not just a shield, you know, in terms of protecting the integrity of the Canadian immigration system, but a sword to try and um, they, they're going after that, that, order you know it's not enough to deny the admission but it's really that they want that that they want to, and i've heard this said by cbsa officers we want somebody to leave under an order um, as opposed to just denying the the status that, for which they are applying well that was the uh one of the blog posts i did was the whole misrep as a deterrence policy where in uh -huh. order to send a message to the community to use their language they were going to start aggressively pursuing misrep which is, you know, if you're going to pursue misrep on blatant fraud, fraudulent documents, fine. I mean, I have no problem with that. But it's, as you were saying, Mario, where it's, you see all these federal court decisions now on misrep findings where someone said that they didn't have a previous refusal and isn't allowed to leave a refusal. Is a canceled U.S. visa a refusal? Mm -hmm. When you're getting into the nitty gritty of terminology, it is, you know, what is the point like what, what are they after? Yeah, I've been working lately on a case involving an Afghan woman who's overseas and we are spending, she's overseas, her spouse is a Canadian or a permanent resident of Canada. And, you know, we're spending time, like real time addressing an undisclosed Canadian visitor visa, uh, US visitor visa refusal. 
And I mean, she's living as a displaced person in a third country, you know, and, you know, they're talking about all these efforts to assist the Afghan people, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, this is this really a useful um, dedication of resources that, that really the focus of these submissions is about this forgotten long ago, completely unrelated to anything, um, you know, application that was made at the behest of an employer that was just, you know, just missing and it was just forgotten in the context of this greater application. Um, so, so yeah. And and the, and the amazing thing about <clears throat> about the points you're both making is, so we have various lanes progressing at different times. So we have the modernization efforts that are ongoing, the increased digitization of materials online, um, sophisticated systems, uh, AI that if you look at ESDC's internal memos, actually their definition of artificial intelligence is actually higher than human judgment. So they're looking for, that's, that's, their, that's their, from one of our access requests, that's the definition they're proceeding on. While at the same time, you have this self-help system, right? You know, this is a this is a plug and play. So these lanes are happening. Meanwhile, certain things I refer to them as standing in quicksand, which is the the core pillars of what we're we, we as lawyers uh, working on behalf of clients the the right to you know discretion, unfettered discretion, procedural fairness. Um, these to me. Um, it seems as though they are disappearing and will have to be reinvented because there is no way that the way the modernization is progressing, the law as it currently stands can speak to these realities. And this is not 10 years or 20 years down the road. It's right now. So um, if you have a sophisticated system, let's just go back to the misrep conversation where you're tracking all kinds of things. I mean, really gender, uh, uh, interactions, adverse interactions, whatever that means, let's say on a, on a, on a temporary migration, does, does an adverse factor that goes into these AI systems, does that include applying for an extension once you're in Canada? Is that considered adverse behavior because you're going beyond? We don't know. But so you have all of these things happening, but yet we're still um, having difficulties having lawyers and authorized representatives access the, the portals. Yeah, that's, that's a big glitch. It's too difficult. Um, we're still hammering individuals if they fail to disclose that U.S. refusal that we already have and is already in the algorithm and we're already using it. But sorry, that's five years. Um, there's, there's an absolute disconnect. And, um, and I think in systems like this, um, you look at New Zealand, for example, okay, they're considered to have a fairly progressive immigration system. They put things in place and they found what was called a, a harm model. They, they found that by tracking certain characteristics, uh, they were inadvertently collecting for irregular migrants what were deemed to be troublemakers. That's the word they use, troublemakers. They said, you know, this, this can't be the way forward. So they came up with the New Zealand uh, algorithm charter moving forward, responsible governance. So why I'm so uh, motivated by this area 
is because when I first started this, I thought, okay, artificial intelligence as a part of what we do, right? But I'm realizing now it's actually defining soon almost everything that we are doing, including how does the law keep pace? And right now, you know, I understand that there's a lot of things are in stages, they're cautious approach, we're getting piecemeal information. But, but my view is, you know, we have to go back to the actual legislation that's empowering these stakeholders to even embark on these processes and start to really realize as lawyers, um, this is affecting our everyday practice and what we understand to be fairness and standard procedural rights. And, and what is that going to mean? Why do you think there is a lack of transparency over the digitization and what they're doing with artificial intelligence? So, uh, you know, the, first of all, it's very difficult to answer that as a, in one brush because different agencies are doing different things. Some people are outsourcing their AI development. Others like uh, IRCC are doing it in-house. But so far, it's, you know, to boil down what the answer has been, we're still developing. We're still trying to understand how to do this. Um, we don't want to make any definitive pronouncements. But my view is, um, if you start triaging applications, you're already into it. Even if it's a, you're, you're into India, you're into China. So, you right. know, there's that, that big talk about, you know, the three tiers and the first tier is automatic el positive eligibility assessment. Okay, so 38% of positive eligibility. Um, it's a big number, right? Because we're talking about hundreds of thousands of applications. Tier two and tier three um, have potential other issues. And of course, all three of them are reviewed for admissibility. There's a manual officer's review. But we all remember the principle of first in, first out, right? Um, does that apply to these tiers or are these 38% in the VIP line and anybody with wrinkles in two and three going to the back of the line? Um, these are things that we have to know. And the most direct answer to your question so far, Stephen, is because there's not responsible governance models in place yet. We don't even have an algorithmic impact assessment like the, you know, the RIAS we see with legislation. Yeah. This is as powerful as anything else we need that governance. Is there still a human? Slow this down though, a little bit though, because like, I think I think we've talked about like, I mean, our 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 overarching theme is how the department is using artificial intelligence in processing, and I think that I, I think maybe to kind of be a bit clearer as to what those various stages are in terms of how they're using them, because I think that maybe um, the listeners aren't entirely clear how it's being deployed and what. I don't know if you agree, Steve, as to whether or not um, whether or not there's that kind of clarity as to how it's being deployed. And I mean, I think uh, for me, first of all, it's the lens through which these tools are actually being let loose on the immigration system. Because I, I agree with what you're saying, Mario, that um, it's one thing to start kind of like, and I, I would say that this is the same sort of thing that we've seen with the kind of proliferation of these portals, these different mechanisms, like they seem innocent enough, you know, you're sort of like, okay, well, we're going to have this mechanism that you can use to kind of to navigate the immigration system. And they seem like just, um, just a mechanism, 
Like it's just a machine that you use to process, but the, it's one of those where form ends up determining the substance in, in, in the fullness of time where like, because the process now, like when you're going through express entry, the fact that you have to go through this representative portal, the fact that when an, a lawyer represents a client, the client can't access their own file, for example. Um, the fact that um, when you're working through this machinery, it means a certain level of sophistication by the user. It means that people that don't have computer access are somehow kind of kept out. The fact that they've now started using completeness screening as being one of the determinative things about what cases, you know, like if you don't have a certain document, then we're just going to bounce the whole application. These things are no longer just about the way that they do it. It's, it's um, substantive in the sense that like, you know, if you don't have the right documents, you're just not going to get through. And that's going to like the number one thing that I think prevents a person from self-representing is that if they don't do it right, it's just gonna come back to them, you know? And so it basically is an access to justice issue. It's not simply about the machinery, it's substantive. And so, so that's what I think we wanna, I, I wanna kind of get at more with the, like going back to the, the real basics, first principles, what's the issue with artificial intelligence? How does the influx of artificial intelligence, how is that impacted substantively what's happening in immigration? Well, I think the first first principle coming back, um, and I think like there's two separate areas of artificial intelligence. There's how mm -hmm. the user interacts with the system, which is what you're referring to, Deanna. And then there's what Mario was talking about, which is increasingly who makes the decision. Exactly. Is there a human or is there a computer who makes well, the Well, I was just using the example of the portals as a way of showing like, I think that's different, but I'm just using that as an example of how autom autom automation has entered into it. But I think artificial intelligence is different, but I don't like, I personally am not clear exactly how AI is being used in the immigration process. And I don't think that the average user is clear. So I think just information about how it's being used. And then I think there are ways, because my sense is that it's being used much more in the enforcement side, as opposed to in the enabling processing side. But again, I'm not even sure, because I'm not sure how that has played out and you know what, what levers were decided to be pulled in terms of um, leveraging artificial intelligence. And so I think if, if Mario has insights into how, how that's working, um, you know, I'd love to be illuminated. Okay, so I'll do a, a quick uh, across IRCC and ESDC and CBSA. Yeah. Um, so IRCC, so there was the Economic Action Plan passed in 2015. Um, and that was to manage volume, right? So finally, in 2018, we get these management of TRVs in India and China um, streamed through three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three, <clears throat> all ultimately have officer manual review at the end. Tier one is an automatic eligibility assessment that is done by the artificial intelligence it is streamed directly to an officer. Um, that's 38% of applications. Um, at the same time in 2018, um, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll, let me, I'll hold off on that because it's a joint one. 2019, they indicated that they are developing a playbook on automated decision support um, to provide uh, the end user with clear reasons 
Um, and you know, our hope for those of us that are working in the AI stream is that clear reasons would mean you actually get the full reasons and not the standard boilerplate. So that could be a positive, um, hasn't happened yet, uh, as well as your um, clear identification of your right to seek judicial review in certain cases and the timelines hasn't happened yet, but that's one of the initiatives. The other initiative um, that's going on is a joint one between uh, the DOJ side on the IRCC and Employment and Social Development Canada looking for pre-removal risk assessment and humanitarian and compassionate litigation support tools, uh, predictive outcomes for the litigation, uh, combining, combining some of that data mining to see when they go to court, um, how to challenge these. Um, the systems right now, to Diana's point, um, the, the artificial uh, intelligence is set up. Apparently, it's based on uh, a, a number of past officers' decisions. There's the removal of poor quality data. And then you have adverse information uh, that factors in. And then the system is retrained by a data scientist. And so it's supposedly continually updating itself. So that's on the uh, IRCC side. ESDC currently has 31, at least on my last check, 31 AI initiatives, 12 of which um, can be linked to what we mainly do, which is LMIAs and work permits. Um, nine are partially or fully outsourced. IRCC, I think I said this before we, we, we got online, um, they're doing all of their AI development in-house. ESDC is, is farming some of it, which raises all kinds of issues. Data licenses, who controls things, it's a separate issue. Um, ESDC is looking for deep learning um, and how, for example, they can carry out labor market program evaluations. So that's happening right now. On the CBSA side, you have radio frequency identification, which you may have heard, and, and it's already that data is being embedded in certain cards, passports, enhanced driver's licenses, Nexus. Um, that has been developed and is in place now. They're also developing a chat bot uh, with Deloitte, um, and they're hoping that 85% of questions can be answered. Um, I've heard IRCC is thinking of something along those lines as well, as is ESDC. I think eventually we're going to see chatbots, obviously, everywhere. And then there's some stuff outside of our, uh, there's commercial risk assessments being done with AI, but there's also the facial recognition that the CBSA is using and other border information service data that they're collecting. So there's a number of initiatives. Helios is one of them. It's called, uh, and so these initiatives are all kind of happening. Uh, you're learning about them more through our access to information requests, through some conversations I've had with some officials, some presentations I've done. Um, but it's not that, you know, free flowing uh, information that we would expect. And I completely agree with you, Deanna, most individuals don't know um, what's happening. Most individuals don't even, I mean, I want to say most, but a lot of individuals don't even realize, I think I mentioned in one of my papers that, you know, they use their smartphones every day, but less than 10% of individuals can even accurately explain what AI is, uh, even though their AI is 
sending them preferences in terms of Apple News based on what they've selected. Siri is doing updates to your phone, not always, just based on your preferences, not with direct interaction. So a lot of these things are happening. Um, countries like Australia, New Zealand, the United States are further along. And so we've looked to them to see uh, some of the wins and some of the losses. Um, it's, it's really important because you know, this is not an, you know, I don't take an anti-AI stance. I think there's a lot of opportunity here with AI. There's a lot of benefits, but we have to realize that this is not binary. It's not because it's science, it's right or it's wrong. There is a tremendous number of layers. Um, the data that goes in and the data that's refined as you go, um, history has already shown us can lead to uh, heightening the divides in society politically, uh, further driving and, uh, and disenfranchising uh, uh, various groups, uh, gender, other racial status, that, that's already happening. So it's not a neutral technology. And because it's not a neutral technology, which I think is the main takeaway, that's where we get back to that whole AI responsible and innovative governance that is really, you know, I have a number of, of presentations coming up over the next few months, and a lot of that, my discussion is going to be upon what's the impact on decision making. Um, are we using this as a tool, which Diana was speaking about, to triage, um, to help inventory management, and how much of it is decision making? What's the impact on discretion? And ultimately, what tools do we need to help um, guide this? Um, the stakeholders are speaking about responsible governance. Um, I just haven't seen it actually in a document. There's about 25 documents internationally that speak to AI governance, but in Canada, we haven't seen um, uh, Patrick McEvenu and, um, and Michelle Mann um, from IRCC and DOJ respectively. Uh, have put in some good information and, and I think they're doing some very good work on their side and they should be recognized for that work. And I think it's a good stepping stone and they've been great with sharing information with myself um, as, we, as we continue the conversation. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, the you know, table setting there, Deanna, in terms of what we're looking at. The other term that um, in the past month, I think largely through efforts of yours, uh, Will Tao's, um, and others as uh, Chinook. And I don't know if uh, it's just one component of AI that's become a particular uh, attention focus of lawyers um, and increasingly the general public, but do you want to provide an overview of what Chinook is as well? Okay, so Chinook, uh, and there's another one in Manila called Harina uh, that hasn't received as much attention as Chinook, but uh, basically it's an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> with a number of drop-down, it's about four modules, a number of drop-down menus of reasons to refuse. Um, it's an aid, it's to expedite um, decisions, and Will Tao has been kind enough to share a lot of information, including the cross-examination of some of the officials involved, um, and it's a fascinating read. So Chinook right now is not AI, but what I see it as is a precursor to AI. And, and here's why I think that is. So um, it helps generate reasons. Not all of those reasons, not all of those actions are occurring 
in the light of day in the GCMS. It's behind the curtain. This is a, an officer tool. Again, you know, we're speaking about back to the future. This stuff is happening outside of scrutiny. There's no oversight on it. And it also apparently can't be populated directly into the GCMS because it violates other clients' privacy. So whenever the officer's in there, they're obviously accessing multiple files or potentially profiles, and you know that, that it's working its way through the court. And I think it's really good that this has come to light now because these are the types of things. So what ends up happening um, is the AI is driven by what's called officers' rules, which are developed by senior immigration officers. The actual officers making the decisions can't see the officers' rules, but it goes into how they program the algorithms. So my concern with these types of approaches, which are behind the scene, is how much of this gets buried uh, in uh, these officers' rules. So let's give a practical example. we decide uh, in our algorithm that anybody that applies for a study permit over the age of 30 is streamed as less likely to be approved. You know, oh my goodness, that's a charter. Well, is it really? Because we use age discriminators and in, in express entry. No one's challenged that. We don't even know that the charter, you know, even applies to, uh, that's still unsettled law that applies outside of Canada. So we now have an officer's rule that's buried in there that you're representing an applicant who is over the age of 30 and unbeknownst to you, processing time might be triple, uh, might be more complicated because you have been funneled into this, into this stream. That's just a small example. Yeah. If there is not transparency, what could happen? But Mario, if the reason said that this one of the factors that went into the decision were the age of the applicant, then that would be something that, you know, with Vavilov, you could say, well, was this a reasonable basis going into all of the factors in the case? That would be something. But the fact that it's an unmentioned factor, but it is one that actually was part of the reasoning, but an un an unmentioned factor, um, the more that these are, and I think that this is exactly what I was trying to get at, the more that these unmentioned factors go into the determination, not just in the triaging, but also into the decision-making, that's where there's that chilling effect that we have, where there's the the, the unmentioned reasons that are um, that are not mentioned in the decision, and yet um, they are actually having an impact on what the outcomes are. Um, that if they were stated, then they would be able to be out there in the decision. There would be that transparency. That would be something that then um, would potentially be at for consideration on judicial review. Um, but even if, I mean, even leaving aside the question of judicial review, once you've got a refusal for an applicant to actually go and take that case to judicial review, it's a huge cost factor. And so just like in terms of the governance component, what what are these things that go into um, that go into 
affecting these decisions, the fact that these factors are not transparent, that they can't be reviewed at all. Um, this is kind of what I'm going to in terms of the, the transparency. The, I mean, these are the, the pillars of decision making that, that, you know, that are pronounced under Vavilov. Transparency, justifiability, all of those things that we could review in a decision at federal court. But if they're just AI triage factors or AI decision making factors, they're not out there for us to um, to, to litigate even. Exactly. You, you hit the point. Um, so if we, if we think about um, some of the reasons they're saying we can't make this stuff available so far is because, well, then, then fraudsters are going to be able to game the system. So this, there has to be some confidentiality. I think then the debate that occurs is, well, why can other countries like New Zealand and others have fully transparent algorithmic models where this information is now available. Um, this to me is, we were speaking about this earlier, is a return to when I first began my practice, you know, 25 years ago when you couldn't get the manuals, things were behind the scenes, it was very difficult and, and you were trying to chase what you were actually up against. So right, what, exactly. ultimately, what ultimately happens, Deanna, to your point, is you have what's called, you know, they're just reasons that are devoid of any meaning. I, I produced two sets of reasons from two different visa officers, uh, offices in one of my papers. They're so generic that this is before I got all the information of where the AI was actually happening. I thought for sure this was AI because the decision read, um, you know, I think there were study permit applications. You are refused because of your educational background or your work history. It didn't even give a reason. It just listened. And they read almost exactly the same. So to your point, you shouldn't even have to need to go to judicial review to do this because that's already onerous and, and not what the system is set up to be. But, and, but for if individuals don't know what they are applying for or what the parameters are to use the case law, how can you connect the dots when you don't know all the dots? And that's really what's happening. Have you learned if that is AI? Because I've seen refusals like that and I've wondered, is it just someone clicking from a list yeah. Um, in Excel or something. I think, you know, again, those sound more like Chinook-like reasons mm -hmm. than AI-driven at this stage. Um, yeah. And I'm not suggesting, I, I want to be clear for the podcast, I'm not suggesting that that is a rule, that uh, over 30, they're, they're, they're triaged in certain ways. I'm just using an example of some of these things that might be egregious to the public um, could be getting into our algorithms um, and they, they may have a basis. They may say, look, 86% of applicants, I'm just taking numbers out of the air now, are actually under 30. So yeah. it makes sense for us to triage in this way. That's fine. There might be a, real, a reason to do it, but it has to be transparent. Self-represented individuals and their lawyers should know the case to be met. It's law 101. That's why I refer to it now as procedural fairness 2.0. And now I'm going to um, uh, apply the term to discretionary decision-making 2.0. I think we need an evolution of what procedural fairness is going to mean in this new world and what discretion is going to mean in this new world. For uh, just a quick, a, a quick example, an applicant, uh, there's lots of ways to fetter discretion now that happens mm -hmm. outside of even the decision-making context. You move everything online, let's say, except for rehabilitation applications, temporary resident permits, ministerial relief applications, those remain paper-based. You have now fettered the discretion of an officer because by the time it gets to that officer, where it goes to an officer, how long it takes, justice delayed, justice denied, that is now, to me, 
uh, discretionary decision-making 2.0 consideration. I have you streamed these or set the system up in such a way that by the time an officer is even looking at it, it's devoid of most of its meaning. Whoa. That's kind of making my head explode a little bit, Mario. Well, especially in like in your context, Deanna, and caregivers where most people's children will have grown up by the time they're processed. Well, yeah. I mean, like, and, and also like I'm doing a ton of study permit refusals and a ton of, um, you know, caregiver PR application refusals and all that sort of thing. And just thinking about the procedural fairness components just based on how they've been triaged and what factors were, um, you know, were um, added that sort of, um, that are not even visible, that are not even based on the regulations or not even based on any of those things that um, are not even visible to us. Um, uh, yeah, that's just kind of adding a whole other layer that, that, that I hadn't even been alive to. Well, and it's also what causes things to be triaged. So I've pulled open uh, this document that I got through an Access to Information Act, and it's titled Justification of Education for ETA Questionnaire um, Prepared by the Data and Predictive Analytics Team at IRCC. It's a short, very, very redacted document um, that just gets into why are they asking for education in an ETA application? And the answer essentially is, we don't know yet, but eventually there could be a correlation or a trend with overstays and education level. And all these little combinations of what we would think of unrelated or coincidental data points might eventually form the basis for people getting triaged a certain way or refusals down the road. So how do you find this stuff then? What are you a-tipping exactly? Like when it comes to a specific applicant, what are you looking for? So uh, when I, uh, we, we uh, put in about 45 a-tip requests. CSIS responded saying, everything is private. We have zero pages to provide. That's amazing. So, so that's number one. Number two, we had to have meetings because there were thousands and thousands of pages and they felt that it would be more productive to have a meeting and for us to address uh, our questions directly to them. So the, the issue with the ATIPs generally is we know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Is that this is moving so fast that the information you might be receiving today, at, to Stephen's point, has already been used in a new trend, a new rule, and, a, and you're, just, you're just chasing uh, delayed information. Yeah. I, I, I'll ask you both a quick question. Would you, would you find it objectionable if, if one of your clients seeking judicial review 
was later found because they sought judicial review of a decision that there was adverse information and they were triaged differently in the future. 100%. 100%. Okay. So if we break that down, adverse information may be anything that's defined as outside of the normal streaming. So seeking judicial review, there could be a reasonable argument to be made that it's reasonable streaming. But these are the types of questions we're trying to get the answers to. Because, you know, when, when you look at some of the stuff that's happened, let's say in the United States with Atlas, that citizenship revocation tool that they found uh, was discriminatory or I border control and all of these things. The tough questions to ask, and it's very difficult to find these answers is, we understand now that there is an issue and it's being walked back, but how was that issue discovered? And these are the things that we're still trying to learn. Does it take class actions? Does it take the government to be transparent in producing that information? Um, how can we collectively get this information? And the same is gonna happen in Canada to your question, Deanna, how do you get this information? If it's not happening in real time, it's already dated. Um, so I, what I'm trying to do now with whatever channels I have open, as I discover something, I try to put it right to the department and I'm hopeful that this will generate questions, but ultimately for something like this, there's gotta be AI support. There should be ongoing conversation. There shouldn't be one or two or three lawyers that are speaking to them or not. This has to be accessible to all. And that goes to the uh, responsible and innovative governance. Let me ask you, like when you said this thing about like the, the call to practitioners in terms of like being aware of this issue as a procedural fairness issue, like be practical and tell like what is the practice point you're making for litigators, for example, like let's say you do have a study permit refusal or you have a permanent residence refusal, how do you how do you change your practice in terms of responsibly litigating that issue, knowing the, the way that AI might have affected the decision-making process? So um, I think there's a number of steps involved. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of it happens outside of the specific file through okay. what we're, the types of discussions we're having, understanding what's happening in the community, uh, getting the latest information, um, hopefully through organizations that continue to lobby for understanding. Within your specific file, being equipped with that information, I think there's got to be a number of recitals in your application. How the application has been decided, what tools have been used to triage, what tools were used to decide the application, who worked on the application. It's almost like putting a bunch of questions that if they eventually, if you're eventually litigating that matter, are live issues before the court because you've, you've put them right into your submission. And the hope with that, um, the practical hope is not wanting to end up in court and having good recitals that you can rely on, that's important. But what's more important is that an officer, um, hopefully reviewing that application, is aware of the procedural fairness issues. They've put, you've, you've put that decision squarely before the officer. And hopefully if enough of that type of, 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 of earnest requests are happening across the profession, um, that these become live issues more frequently in applications and we're not unaware, we're not sleeping on the issue that we think the old days, if you put in an application, it goes to an officer, first in, first out. And, you know, right now they're saying that's not happening in many parts of the world. Um, 
that may have been true uh, yesterday, may have been true two months ago. I don't know because it's changing so fast. So I think part of being aware is that the old connections don't apply anymore. So you're going to have to start building up those submissions and those arguments. And I think in terms of colleagues, I, I, I think there's never been a, a need to more collectively uh, call one another and understand what's happening, trends. I think organizations that are starting to keep trends of applications, sharing information, filling out our own Excel sheets as to what's happening, what's your experience? Are you seeing these reasons? This is the reasons I got, yeah. I think more than ever. And I'm not seeing enough it's of It's an that amazing enough. time for collaboration, given that we can't stand in the same room together. More. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? Yeah, but, it's brutal. Or well, in the spousal sponsorship context, like the forms and immigration applications don't ask for race. It can be presumed maybe from some of the uh, what city someone's born in or application photos. But if the AI and the predicative analysis does without humans at IRCC knowing start triaging based on race, um, oh, they if, they aren't proactive, they yeah, if they aren't proactively for... asking or looking for that, it's only... I don't know how you do it, but it's only through mass collaboration to identify, hey, there is a racial, uh, the predicative learning might be doing something racial. Yeah. Going back to the triaging that you were talking about, Mario, is there, because I think I saw um, a similar stat that like in China, AI pretty much processes and approves something like 30 to 40% of applications, which means your average visa officer is only seeing more problematic files does that ultimately lead like how does that inf like how do you think that influences the officer's mindset in terms of the applications that they're seeing when they're starting from the point of well this has been flagged as probably a problematic file right um you know it's referred to as a proxy decision right so um it's a great question so the interesting part about it is that is that it's triage not to decision. It's it's triage to eligibility assessment. And then an office still still has to review every single file for admissibility. Uh, and that's what they consider to be their um, you know, safety function, that there's manual review on every file. And their statistics reveal that 99% of those files that have been triaged in tier one go on to positive ultimate full decisions. Um, I think the, the triaging has a lot of practical um, implications. Um, we don't know what officers' quotas are, what they have to do, uh, how many files they have to get out each month, if they even exist. But I would imagine if on my desk there were 10 files and uh, you know four or five of them came through this positive eligibility, I'm getting on those right away because I'm going to get them out. They're easier. Um, so am I looking at two and three less frequently? Are they getting pushed down the line? Uh, we don't know. We don't have answers to those questions. Are, are they all being triaged at the same time? Are they being funneled to different officers? Um, for two and three, do you need certain levels of experience? So that means fewer officers in a particular visa post that can actually even deal with those cases. So in my view, it's a further imagination of anyone that has a wrinkle in their past. And there's serious consequences to that. I can't tell you how many cases I've represented where we had, you know, world leading researchers or neurologists or whatever coming to Canada 
that perhaps had um, a child with a medical issue um, or a DUI in the past. So now if that individual that has that net benefit to the country is, and this is where it goes to proxy decision, goes from two weeks processing time to six months or eight months and they move on, to me, that's not equitable. And, and I, I get the productivity gains, I understand that. But, but, my, but what's almost happening in my view, and I hope it doesn't go this way, is if you do not meet that predetermined set of boxes and check, 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 your journey is going to be extremely complicated um, and it's gonna be very difficult to even get in the line, let alone ahead of the line in a meaningful way. And I think that's the consequences of how these algorithmics, you know, anybody who challenges the algorithmic set, uh, systems are always saying, oh, you're an individual rights perspective, for sure. Um, but mass processing um, that lacks individualization can't be the answer. Because then I, mean, I think also, I mean, we did a we did a, a podcast not long ago on on mandamus applications, and I would think that that would be a particularly fertile ground to investigate the way that some of these algorithms algorithms are being played out. Because um, in those particularly long delay cases, um, the impact of how this triage is working would be you know, really being tested because uh, presumably um, these factors will be at play in terms of why those cases haven't come up for determination. Yeah, and, I, and, I think there, and I think there's bigger legal questions is, uh, which are, well, what's wrong with doing it this way? If you are trying to attract a number of applicants to meet certain quotas, to argue the other side, um, these... 80% of applicants present the biggest gains in terms of immediate processing, no wrinkles, no issues, 20% that are gonna be displaced. Um, just, sorry, Mario, I'm, I'm thinking like, you're talking about these as procedural fairness issues. And I'm just wondering like, are they procedural fairness issues? Or are they kind of like, like, is there actually a commitment or is there an obligation to first in, first out? Um, I mean, I know that under um, under Stephen Harper, there was a very clear, like, well, there's no promise. I mean, that sort of like, I mean, that was the turning point with Express Entry that like, we're no longer, we're no longer promising first in, first out. There was no, um, and I mean, I think that that's why so many of us were so um, troubled by the whole ministerial instruction, express entry, that the idea, like, is this actually, um, I'm sort of going back at the kind of deeper kind of legal framework kind of perspective, like, um, what is the part in our legal framework that makes this, that problematizes this idea of them saying, well, we're going to treat these ones first, like, how do you get at that invidious issue? Um, um, as a whole. Um, exactly. That's why I'm referring to it as procedural fairness 2.0, because it's going to have to be reinvented. And it may not be reinvented in the way that we understand it to be. These, you know, triaging models, um, you know, terminating the federal skilled worker system, you know, Q, we haven't fared well when challenging these types yes, of Yes, I see what you're saying. 
okay. lot of lawyers uh, are very upset, rightly so, with the lack of access to the TR to PR pathways. And you know, you know, let's yes. let's challenge, let's sue. But what exactly is, to your point, Diana, uh, Deanna, the administrative responsibility? What is the administrative right of having counsel right. in this situation? Is it does it extend to counsel actually uploading your application, or does it just simply mean that you have the right to have consultation behind the scene, or maybe not? So these legal principles have to be redefined right. at this time, and this is why I, I urge the stakeholders that we need to be in the room because the system they develop I see. Um, is going to be here for a long time. Okay. Okay, I'm finally catching on. Um, I'm a little bit slow to the uptake, but really it's it's not so much about the litigating as about the governance issue um, because, because ultimately there's no kind of um, legislatively given right to first in, first out. It's more about this strategic, like what is the plan? Um, what is the um, what is the methodology that we have signed on for? And but I think in terms of the fact that there are factors that are being used and the transparency issue, to me that is a rule of law question, and that is not you know. Um, do you agree with that or? Um, it's tough to say, Deanna, because, um, you know, you use the age discriminator. No one's ever challenged that you lose points over 35. Right? Well, I think you would also have to show that since age will never appear in the actual reasons, was an officer just aware that that's how it was triaged? Does an officer even know how it's triaged? Right. Um, and did the officer then conduct their own assessment? Where I get concerned is Mario, you mentioned that AI might lead to better reasoned decisions. I'm concerned it's just going to lead to incredibly lengthy boilerplate decisions that aren't actually written by a human. And I come back to, um, I think I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast when a certain, uh, when a federal court judge during one of my hearings, when I was raising whether in that case, the minister had read a document said, which you know, shocked my client a bit, but and just affirmed what I had kind of always believed that our legal system depends on the fiction that people are actually reading these applications in their entirety. And while everyone proceeds with that fiction, everyone behind like knows that it's not possible that officers are reading everything. And so does this just become a, does our immigration system become one where officers are just reading AI summaries or AR, AI summaries or AI refusals and just signing off on them, having never read the actual applications? It's entirely possible. I mean, you look at the Estonia Small Claims Court, you look at the Chinese Internet Courts. I know that sounds like all oh, those are separate countries, but, and there's some leading lawyers in civil litigation bar here in Canada are saying, look, uh, get on board you oppose this, uh, amongst other things, you're going to be subject to an algorithmic reprisal. Um, but, um, but ultimately, the question is, you know, what, what really goes into an administrative law decision? Where do the, in a new context, like you were saying, Stephen, if all this information was, was actually fully considered by AI that no human could do at this volume, but AI can, 
um, where's the foul? Um, and and my my concern with that is that although we know in immigration law you can be informed by the past, it's how the past is amplified and applied to the specific facts of a case that is the heartland of discretion and being able to create new trends or new law or move with the times when the law is slightly behind um, you know, societal uh, positions and, and evolutions. So I think you, you run a big risk um, if you defer to techno-solutionism. I think, if anything, we've seen that most humans, if there's an easier option, are gonna, if it makes their life easier, well, why wouldn't you do it? It's just like, let's take a silly example of using your GPS. There was some fun with uh, deciding you know, what your route was gonna be and you unfolded those maps and you decided you wanted to take the scenic tour. And there was a, a mental exercise that went into that. Now it's just fastest route, boom, 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 away you go. We've given that away. So the texture and the depth and the layers of decisions and what it means and the mental exercise officers have to go through, or we as lawyers and representing, is being fundamentally redefined. Um, Not even to mention, like, I mean, this is going to make me seem like even older than I actually am. But like, if you were to set Mario and Deanna loose in the city of Ottawa and try and tell us that we had to make our way from point A to point B, we are fundamentally incapable of doing that now. You give us GPS and we can now do it. But um, I wonder, like, I mean, the, the thing about like the system, no, like we are designing a system that is no longer capable of making those determinations. And when our system is, I understand we have like all these economic factors and all these sorts of determinations, but when so much of our system is based on humanitarian decision-making and refugee determinations and that sort of thing, the idea of building a system that is not based on human, um, you know, what the Canadian public is, is prepared to accept and, you know, all of these kind of um, components that, you know, we're litigating regularly about compassion and empathy and, um, and you know, um, those humanitarian concepts. Um, I do find it a little bit chilling, the idea of, of, of automating the decision-making process. And again, that, that does perhaps make me just hold. Yeah, and it also yeah. creates a new layer. Like, you know, uh, Elon Musk speaks about the, you know, the tertiary um, the, the, the ghost imprint you leave, the right to be forgotten, the right to be de-identified. Even after someone passes away, they have a digital ghost that continues to survive in their various social media apps. So it's just, uh, and, and then, you know, I want to talk a little bit about generative algorithms, which are very sophisticated, uh, sophisticated algorithms that through audio, uh, videos, news can produce a completely false but highly convincing narrative. So, and, and if we keep in mind that, you know, the AI uh, governance um, is tied to a particular country or state's democratic principles and how that's going to vary throughout the world in different, how this information that's being generated how that impacts officers in the world they are in in decision-making, how you know, a narrative is put out that anybody that was part of this group did X and it was completely false, but it's very difficult to dig that, dig that out. 
you imagine us as lawyers now, you're going to be dealing with generative algorithms. There's also segmentation algorithms, which speak to that deal with specific things that can highlight and make sure that certain individuals pop up. This I gave an example um, in the Stanford vaccine rollout, just, just something that's relatable to people uh, for, for COVID. And, and basically, the algorithm spit out that administrators should get their vaccines before the frontline workers. So can you imagine how that was programmed and who was selecting the boxes? And that's right. a, a, a relatable example of what we're dealing with. So the enormity of this is it's, it's really interesting, but I still am optimistic. Why am I optimistic? Because I think this is an opportunity to still do things better. Um, I think it's an opportunity um, if we're in the room. And, and this is the main thing that I've uh, earnest call to all stakeholders. I've made this all over and I'm sure others are doing the same. We have to be in the room. There has to be transparency. Put the show out there. Don't just meet with us behind the scenes and work together in organizations like the CBA and we're all shaking hands and doing things. But then the public voice is, you know, don't leave your documents with them and be careful of fraud. No, these are intelligent stakeholders that help facilitate millions of future Canadians. Be in the room, let's work together. And I think ultimately, um, if harnessed properly with good governance, this could still be a win. <laughs> this makes my brain hurt. Honestly. And that's the optimist take. As long as it's behind closed doors. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, I just, I don't understand why. If, if they say they're still developing it or if that's the reason, but it just seems that unless people can see what's going on or if they even acknowledge that it is going on, uh, it's hard not to read in negative things to that. I think to me, it's still too much about there's that enforcement lens on it. The idea of being able to game the system is still too much programmed into the mandate and uh Again, that to me speaks very much to, you know, you know, no one speaks of gaming the system when it's about stating what the rules of eligibility are, but somehow when you're talking about AI, that it's about um, somehow being able to outthink the system. And I, I just, I find it very troubling. Well said, yeah. well said. And, and you know, to, to, to show that my optimism is not just based in, you know, uh, in just thoughts, Ravel Navikant, who's a, I don't know if you've heard, but a leading thinker in AI. And basically, and I agree with the position that AI is nowhere close to replicating um, the human brain, okay? It, it's gonna take years and years for it to even understand one neuron, let alone the entire human mind. So to me, the, the, the opportunity, this goes back to what you were both saying earlier about the productivity gains and other things. So these systems are not, yes, they can spit out yes and no based on a fact scenario. There can be some productivity gains. There can be some triaging. So if there's transparency, the tool can be used positively. If we try to dress this up as something more than that, um, yeah. that's when bad actors can really drive the system. If we use this as a tool to be less transparent, if we use this as a tool to say, we're working on the greater good and it's you can't know about it, 
because then the bad actors are going to know about it. Then we go down a very bad, bad road. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, if it's if it's really um, if it's really just an efficiency producer, why is it a secret? Um, and why don't we know what the factors are? I just I don't get that. And I mean, you're talking you've you've mentioned repeatedly, Mario, about the the age um, factors that go into express entry and how that's not being challenged. But everyone knows what that is, and everyone knows how to calculate their points, and you know, like it or hate it everyone knows what they're up against and everyone can calculate their score. And so to me, at least, um, at least we know what we're dealing with and just the idea of these things kind of operating covertly. And again, I mean, I know that you just put that number, that, that factor out there as being something that you've made up just as an example to show us what an example of this is. But the idea that like, I don't have any doubt that these things exist. And I have said to people for years and years that like, uh, you know, um, based on these three things, you know, like the fact that there's a big age difference in your relationship, you know, um, these two spouses, based on these three things, I believe your application is going to take longer and da, da, da. And, you know, I've, I've developed a pretty good instinct as to how long something's going to take based on what I know about the, the relationship between the parties or based on the factors in their TRP application or their humanitarian and compassion application. And it's kind of, it's a bit spooky um, how accurate I've been able to be because of the, the specific group of types of cases that I work on regularly. Um, um, and, but, but again, um, the idea that, that these are being engendered into our system kind of wordlessly, it is troubling. And, uh, you know, that, that somebody has to hire me and pay my rates in order to be able to have this secret intelligence. Um, you know, I believe that, that, you know, I do believe in a lot of this kind of advocacy around um, making sure that lawyers need to be involved, but I also believe in the access to justice issue that you shouldn't have to hire a lawyer in order to get the secret information. Um, Well, there's another uh, point I mentioned in my paper that I think is important is the digital ghost representatives. I call them, you know, the DGRs. So with the increased um, digitization online, um, what are we what are we looking at now? They can really draw from, you know, eventually all the memorandums of law are going to be online. You can piece together arguments. Um, you can set up a company, um, all your solutions. Because remember, when we, once we have chatbots, we are training people that the answers to your question are a mouse click away. You just keep, just keep searching, keep clicking. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a, you know, is it a generative algorithm? You go down the wrong path and get the wrong information. Do you get a simplistic answer from the chat bot? Um, or do you go to your friendly neighborhood? I call them friendly neighborhood G- DGR that knows how to fill in the, the blanks and knows how to process your application hidden behind technological deception. You never know who they are or what they're doing. They produce an application that sounds real nice um, and seems like it's versed in law. Yeah, it's Stephen Murren's work, but they'll never know. Um, there, we just pulled one of his memos. Um, if we're sloppy, we might leave his name on it and then have to apologize or something. But this is this is this is part of what what's happening, and and you see the key thing is is to understand there's so much social engineering going into this. Every time a data scientist is deciding or whoever's retraining training the system, what outlier decision goes in and what outlier decision goes out. 
um, how the system's being retrained, which decision is being used. You know, I always think of, I had this applicant uh, that was on their third marriage. And I was always thinking if this poor applicant had to go through one of these check boxes, first, first uh, application uh, sponsor was a victim of um, domestic violence. So that marriage was horrible and didn't obviously work out. Second was a widower. Uh, the, the spouse passed away. So now here's an applicant applying for the third time. If you're going through their cookie cutter boxes, uh, how do they get triaged? And then the rebuttal I have when I've raised that in the past was, well, you know, those are outliers. Those are things. There's one thing I've learned in 25 years in immigration law. The common is not so common. Uh, My entire practice is outliers. I don't yes. take a non-outlier case. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I have to turn away work because I have too many. Yeah. So I, I think there's just an element of like hubris when you think that you can determine every ebb and flow in someone's life or, you know, now you, you know, you even have the refugee online application where now all of that highly personal data is going into something that potentially could be uh, hacked, breached. Think about the chilling effect of putting that all in a computer, you're, 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 you're some of the horrors that have happened to you. So the shift, again, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's unfolding uh, right in front of our eyes. And one of the beauties of being in the back nine of your career is that you have a little bit more of an opportunity to focus on things that, you know, the day-to-day -day practice maybe didn't allow you in early. And now I find that's my calling. I want to work on these bigger projects, um, you know, on my own dime. To try to, to try to raise some of these issues, and I hope the next generations pick them up, because the reality is the, the immigration world in 20 years is going to look nothing like it does now. 20 years ago, we couldn't say that, but now we can. Uh, absolutely different. How the act's going to change, um, how the different admissibility provisions are going to change, who the actual decision makers are, amazing stuff. Kudos to you, Mario. I'm ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> That's just from Dennis's podcast when he said uh, that he found practice less and less uh, fun as it went on. Oh my God. I'm there. I'm with you. I'm exhausted. I'm juiced. Uh, I'm because I, I think that this is such fascinating stuff. And, wow. and I'll be very frank. When I first started reading it, these are tough, boring reads. I'm not a techie. I've just tried to learn as much as I can. I've, I've, I've brought on some digital specialists to help me with some of this work so they can decode some of this for me. Um, and, you know, Stephen, to your point, it's, it, it's, it's kind of difficult when you always, you know, you're chasing something and it's already outdated by the time you get it. Well, that's when that ETA and the education, uh, yeah. it would have been neat to know over the last seven years, did they find a correlation between education and whatever they were looking for. And I tweeted a slide uh, from a PowerPoint that was also from, I think, 2014 or 15, where I'm sure what was just a throwaway or maybe not in a PowerPoint was a future use of predicative anal analytics will be to predict outcomes. Example, who is likely to commit a crime in Canada? Mm -hmm. And it would be fascinating to know if they've done research on this, if there are certain, you know, random data sets of birth combined with place of city combined with education equals heightened risk. Um, but yeah, it's always chasing it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I believe there was a recent tweet that they are working on such a tool. I haven't seen it publicly confirmed where uh, recidivism is going to be determined on a percentage basis. 
um, and talk about lack of individualization. You know, this is the, the Ewart case that we talked about uh, in the paper, the Supreme Court of Canada decision uh, that went to the whole point of as an Aboriginal, they didn't factor in his risk elements because there was no Aboriginals in the algorithm and it was determined that it couldn't be represented. So it, it goes that way. But, you know, if you think about it now, they have, <clears throat> I don't know if you heard about this, um, they have it broken down to certain judges and one judge was determined to release the fewest people immediately before lunch. Um, did you read about that? Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. And uh, so these are all the patterns we're picking up and uh, who knows, there might be... Uh, what are you measuring? Which, like, uh, you know... Decisions and release rates and, you know... No, but what are you measuring? Are you measuring the... Uh, you know, the, the decision maker, or are you re re measuring the, um, the, yeah. the applicant, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there's science, but I, I think that there are these little nuances to it that I think, um, that I think so much can get lost in all that. Yeah. It's a, it's a human process. Right? It sure is. You know, so I, there's still the programmer behind it all. So I quote Mr. Roboto. I think Dennis DeYoung yeah. had it all figured out in the early 80s. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> got it. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my farm. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for confirming, Mario. Yeah. Into business with you. Yeah. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, we've scared Deanna enough for one oh, day. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a good discussion, though. I think it's a really interesting discussion. Oh, for somebody else. <laughs> well yeah no and i think you know five to ten years who knows what it will what practice will look like well i feel like when someone applies their whole social media history will be immediately available to ircc is my uh prediction as will their representatives yep uh as oh, well i'm definitely getting it I, was as, I don't do social media as will the as will the strength of the representative uh uh, Deanna's stronger on this case, not so strong on that case, based on certain outcomes. All of a sudden, you're going to be defined, no matter the nuance, the judge, or, you know, as Deanna said, the, you know, the old expression, the devil's in the details. Ah, that's all lost because we're just looking at the algorithm and the shiny numbers that's been been spit out about, Di about Deanna's performance. So don't hire her for those cases. Don't hire Mary or Stephen for those cases because they're not good at those. So this is going to go far beyond the, the information that's going to be at their fingertips will be amazing, including think about comments that are made or criticisms and other things. Um, you know, do you approach these as uh, objective representatives or you have an ax to grind? Are you going to be, are you as a representative going to have an adverse information file? Remember that meeting we went to Mario way back where it was like, well, what about if we just took a blood test to see if somebody <laughs> was going to make, and both Mario and I just sat there with like our chins down in our laps being like, yeah, but it, it kind of feels like that, you know, like, and it was said as a joke, you know, but yeah. it's like, it is a bit like that, you know, because it's some kind of like, um, you know, it's some, there's some formula that's being looked for and, um, you know, and of course there's going to be some science behind it and somebody's going to have a certain level of comfort with, with that formulation. Yeah. But, but Deanna, I think you made the point of the day. If this is for triaging and productivity gains, should be transparent. 
What's yeah. all the secrecy? Um, you know, and I think that's that's a great point and and one that I think other countries are doing it. So I think we have some something to hang our hats on when we're requesting it in Canada. But again, I do, I think this is like, you know, what my husband would call deja screw, you know, that like, I feel like we went through this with the whole ministerial instruction, like when it's kind of like when we're having these kinds of conversations, like when there's this whole thing that we, we can't talk about, you know, where it's like, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's going to, we're just going to, we're just going to figure this out. It's all going to be fine. You'll see it when it's done, you know, and you know, everybody's railing and being like, well, can you just show it to us? Like, what's the plan? Why the need to be like, we'll just set it up and then we'll talk about it once it's there. Or this is just for operations. This is just for automation. This is just about efficiency. Same with GCMS. It's kind of like, um, you know, we've been here before, you know, we've been here before. And it's this kind of like rapid devolution of transparency, accountability, democracy, decision-making, you know, like, um, and so we can have all the Vavilov stuff we like, but as much as the more and more that the factors that go into decision-making, triaging, all of this processing uh, become invisible to us, to me, it's just, it, it's not what is intended in a free and democratic society, you know, like. Um, yeah, and at its worst, it almost feels like elitist condescension, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we can handle it. This is really complicated. Don't, don't worry yourself about what we put in. Yeah. It's for a greater good. Um, just learn how to work in the system. That's your role. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what some people are already calling for. And, and that's the part that I am railing against. I think it has to be relatable. Uh, we all have to be on an information plane that makes sense, not just to us, but the ultimate yeah. users. Um, so I think if we can get there, uh, but it's gonna take it's gonna take a bit. It may require court intervention, uh, maybe a, a long evolution to get there. This could be a 10 or 20 year fight. You know, you think about Hillowitz with the medical inadmissibility we went through, that took you know a decade. Uh, maybe that's what we're eventually looking at with all this stuff, but um on uh, but ultimately um I think it'll be worth the challenge because um I think there's a lot of good that can happen here. But there's a lot of bad, and uh, if we're not careful, we could go down a very dark road. Yeah. The other possibility is that there's an IRCC manager listening to this right now, going, "You guys are worried about this. We could. Did you see the trouble that we had scanning applications during the pandemic? We <laughs> you don't have to worry about this yet." <laughs> yeah, that's true. It may be. Yeah. Well, you let us know, Mario, if you have some more stuff that you need to share with us, some uh, new revelations, uh, some new practice points for us, you let us know and uh, we'll have you back on to give us an update. Yeah, I think we're both, are you both at the KPIC uh, at the end of this month? I am. Yeah, I uh, am. That's yeah, something. so I'm, I'm presenting there on um, discretionary decision making. <laughs> And obviously, a lot of that will be with this. And I'm doing something for Acadie in Montreal. Um, and then, you know, going through the latest thousand pages that we received in ATIPS. And uh, we're going to go back to the department and ask some more questions. Um, are you coming to Vancouver or are you doing it remote? I think remotely at this mm. stage. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see what that brings out. I'm going to produce another paper. You know, it's the trilogy now. It's the third paper and see how that advances the conversation. I'd be interested to hear the, because I, I feel like my questions are getting better. 
Um, as I learn more about this, I'm, I'm understanding more what to ask, um, like any process, but it, it takes a lot of time to simplify this. Uh, that is what I find to be the most challenging part because, um, you know, little things like when they say that, you know, these, we were talking about these uh, generative algorithms and you know that they spit out all this information and they don't even know why that you can't even find out the why when you look at that's if a data scientist looks at the algorithm so that to me is talk about a, a brain teaser i don't understand how that happens i mean there should be a way to track this so is this you know like the internet you know we we don't fully understand it you know schmidt's famous quote we finally created something that we uh, can't fully understand or control as humans. Um, I don't know. So anyway, yeah, as I learn more, I'm happy to share. And, uh, you know, yes, please. If, if this if this is of interest to people, it's, it's a real tough topic, though, because when you get into 10 points about this, you find that you lose most of the audience by two or three because they're like, wow, this is really out there. I'm not sure that this applies. And it takes a lot of mental energy yeah. to, to tie it into your practice today. Yeah, well, it took the first 45 minutes of this podcast before I understood what the hell you were talking about, to be honest. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not the sharpest tool in that box, but uh, yeah. No, if you're not getting it, Deanna, I'm in real trouble. Okay. <laughs> anyway, dear, it was very lovely to catch up with you. Yes, Thank great you so seeing much. you both. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. All right, yeah. talk soon. Take care. Stay well and stay safe. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.